All right, welcome back to Love and Friendship. As promised, we had a whole lot of history to talk about last time, and we have a whole lot of history to talk about this time. Um, the Enlightenment is one of the most fascinating moments in the history of philosophy, and it is very important to understanding not just the way that philosophy has changed over the last 300 years, but also just the way that the world has changed in the last 300 years. Um, the American government owns its origins to the Enlightenment. The, oh, I can't even emphasize exactly how much is devoted to it. Suffice it to say that just as we were emphasizing, you know, the rise of science in our last uh, discussion, the Enlightenment very much is the apotheosis of scientific revolution thinking. Um, after the Enlightenment, things are going to take a very dramatic turn in a very different direction. Um, so, we even get to, to consider one of the primary Enlightenment philosophers, one of the greatest of the sort, namely Immanuel Kant in this particular class, which is exciting. I very rarely get to teach Kant in my Intro to Philosophy classes. Most of his writings are incredibly difficult. Um, but he's also one of my favorite philosophers, one of the most, like, important philosophers in the history of philosophy. Like, it, oftentimes when philosophers sort of recount the history of philosophy, they point to Plato as being the single most important thinker in the history of philosophy, and then Kant clocks in at a pretty close second. Um, so it's nice to be able to talk about it, even if this is a relatively minor and outsider work for, uh, for him. Um... But let's start by talking about exactly what the deal is with the Enlightenment. You'll notice that for all the, my emphasis last time about subjectivity and the sort of humanistic project as exemplified by Montaigne and even Bacon to some degree, um, I very much stress that like humans were at the center of the universe for the moderns, that they were very much interested in humanity as the center point through which the world is experienced. Um, and then I immediately throw Spinoza and Kant at you in the next lecture, both of whom are kind of throwbacks as far as the description of the, the universe from a more objective standpoint. Um, they, this is very much the product of so the scientific revolution creeping into philosophy, and as much as they are sort of approaching philosophy from a more objective attitude, as though what they are describing is purely truth and their perspective is, is kind of insignificant in that process, you'll notice that both Spinoza and Kant, to some degree, are referring to the universe from this scientific perspective which yields objectivity, but which is also still motivated by personal perspective. Um, it is a tricky sort of balance to achieve, but Spinoza especially, you can definitely hear the, the sort of attitudes and, and see the structure resembling medieval texts long ago. Um, his logic is very much on display for all to see. Um, even his style, the, the whole propositional approach in the ethics, is very unusual for other philosophers of this time. But in another sense, Spinoza does sort of link us into a really important set of ideas that are going to develop over the 17th and 18th centuries, um, namely idealism. Um, there's kind of two strains in uh, in modern philosophy as, as it is usually described. Namely, we usually talk about modern philosophy in terms of the rationalists and the empiricists, where the rationalists are primarily concerned with the use of reason. Um, like, 
for the rationalists, and Descartes and Spinoza are sort of the two paradigmatic examples, although you can definitely rope Leibniz and some other uh, of the idealists into this perspective. Um, the rationalists are all about, like, human reason is the basis of all knowledge. Again, remember, as I stressed, like, with the, the rise of modern philosophy came this new attitude that, like, the human being is at the center of the universe, like, all of the knowledge that we have is, is from the subjective attitude. The rationalists emphasize that the tool that a human uses to, you know, experience the world, to understand what is going on around them, to do knowledge, in a sense, is reason their rationality. Most rationalists will emphasize that you can't have knowledge without two components, namely rationality and experience. Virtually all the moderns agree with this. But where the empiricists will go so far as to argue that rationality is totally secondary and all knowledge is based on experience, the rationalists will typically emphasize that it is the process of interpreting experience through rationality that yields knowledge. And rationality is fundamental, and in many cases you can use rationality to achieve knowledge without the assistance of experience. This is something that Spinoza and Descartes are both strongly emphasizing. And I, you'll notice that I use both here, because Descartes is a hugely important philosopher who just doesn't have to have, doesn't have to have much to say about love or friendship and therefore doesn't appear in this class. But even Spinoza cannot totally conduct his business without reference to Descartes, and it is very much assumed that, De that Descartes is in the back of Spinoza's mind as he's writing, even if Descartes wasn't quite such a big deal in his own time. Notice, though, that Spinoza is taking the same tactic here. Like Descartes, like the other rationalists, Spinoza is very much contending that rationality informs all of the logical moves that he is making here. Um, he is conducting a purely rational investigation. He believes that every bit of knowledge that is available to him is coming through the use of his reason. Like, he would downplay experience even more than Descartes does to some degree. And over against these two philosophers, we have the empiricists. Um, and again, this is a large body of writers. We usually associate the empiricists with the Brits, especially. John Locke is an empiricist. Hobbes is kind of a proto-empiricist. Um, and Hume is a hugely important empiricist in his own right. The empiricists, all of them, consider uh, knowledge to be based entirely on experience. You cannot build knowledge whatsoever without experience as your starting point. And while they may disagree about exactly what that looks like or exactly what their conclusions are, this is the fundamental assumption that unites them. Um, now I should emphasize that this isn't the end of modern philosophy. As much as the rationalist-empiricist debate is kind of raging through the 16th and 17th centuries, even into the early 18th century, ultimately there's going to be another move after this that's going to sort of characterize the fate of modern philosophy going forward. Namely, we get the philosophes in the French schools, and we also get Kant's gigantic project to unite rationalism and empiricism and to refute the, the objections of Hume. Um, but I don't want to get into that just yet, because the fact of the matter is Spinoza is working in the 16th century mode, and he is... Um, while he is writing in the 17th century, like he isn't quite an Enlightenment thinker so much as he is anticipating a lot of Enlightenment ideas. The key for Spinoza and the key for 
understanding these sort of rationalistic projects and understanding idealism is to recognize that these thinkers are so grounded in rationality as reason, the, the act of you know human reason to understand the world around them, that they are very much engaged in building these elaborate systems. Um, and the idealists, while they build these elaborate systems based on mathematics or rationality or you know pure rationality, as Spinoza seems to be going with here, um, they're building these systems, and the systems instead come to kind of supplant the world. Um, like you'll notice, Spinoza gets very carried away with his logical arguments. He doesn't spend a lot of time making reference to specific examples. You know, not the way that, you know, Hume would, like, rely on specific examples all the time, or how even Aristotle likes to rely on specific examples or draw, like, hypotheticals in order for us to, to think about these things. Like, when you contrast Spinoza against all of the writers we talked about last time, you know, Montaigne with all of his pointing to classical examples or Bacon talking about classical examples, or even, you know, Milton to some degree, very much grounding his thinking in biblical reasoning and, and sort of personal experience. But notice Spinoza doesn't do any of that. It is all abstraction for Spinoza. It is all rationality for Spinoza. He doesn't need to give examples because this is a rational activity requiring reason alone. But as gorgeous as his philosophy is, and as sort of robust as his examination is, and as compelling as his arguments are, like, it's a shame that we don't actually get to read the first couple of books of the Ethics, because I actually find them way more interesting and compelling, even if they are less concerned with our subject of love and friendship in this class. As great as this is, this is kind of the fundamental criticism that empiricists and other philosophers are going to level at the idealists, namely that their vision of the world has very little in common with the world we actually experience. Um, as much as Spinoza's arguments do seem to resonate with our own experience, as much as they are presented in this very cogent, logical fashion where every single point relies on other points the way that Aquinas did before him, a lot of the empiricists and a lot of the, uh, of the philosophers coming down the pike, especially the postmoderns, are going to look at philosophers like Spinoza or like Leibniz or even like Kant and say, you were building fairy castles. You were building, like, castles in the sky. Um, you were just taking cloud logic and, like, sticking cloud logic on top of it. Systems are not necessarily foolproof. You are building, you know, a fantasy in a kind of sense. Um, and while that's not what we're obviously seeing in this section of Spinoza, again, Spinoza is very much grounding chapters three and four in human experience insofar as, like, he's talking about human emotion and human passion, so to speak. At the same time, you know, idealism has its limits, and there are going to be a lot of critics of idealists, of the idealists, like Spinoza, like Leibniz. Uh, Voltaire, especially, has an absolutely vicious critique of Leibniz and his Candide, which we'll probably talk about a little bit when we get to, you know, the later Enlightenment thinkers. Um, but for now, I want to square our attention on Spinoza and sort of look at what he's doing here. Um, I should mention, first off, that this was the first time I studied Spinoza since, like, my undergrad. He is a weird philosopher, and he kind of sits on the outside of a lot of contemporary philosophical discussion. Again, in part because the idealists and sort of Spinoza among them are, have very much fallen out of fashion in recent memory. Again, because, you know, we all that criticism about them building all those castles in the sky. Um, but at the same time, like, he kind of doesn't 
belong to the tradition, like the history, the sweep of philosophical discussion. As much as there are going to be some people borrowing from Spinoza, they're kind of not doing it consciously. Like, he's very much an outsider. You know, Descartes, everyone recognizes how important Descartes is in the process and the development of philosophy through the modern era. But Spinoza is at the same time a throwback and an anticipation of things to come, and he kind of just doesn't belong in his own time. Um, he's also weird from the perspective of, like, his, his you know, place of origin. Um, he is a Dutch philosopher. We don't get a lot of those. Like, there's a hugely important German philosophy tradition that's going to spring from Kant and Hegel. There's a hugely important French philosophy tradition that will, you know, start with, like, Descartes and Malbranche and develop into the philosophes and mutate many times before we get to Foucault and Derrida and the contemporary French schools. Like, there's a huge British philosophy tradition with, you know, you've got the British empiricists, Hobbes and Locke, human company, and you've got, like, later British uh, analytical philosophers like uh, Russell. You know, there's a ton of sort of tradition underlying these various philosophical schools. And the Dutch really don't have that so much. Like, yes, they do have a couple of important philosophers here and there. They definitely have a, have a number of important theologians, like Calvin was Dutch, and therefore, you know, the entire Calvinist branch of, of uh, the Protestant Reformation can definitely be traced back to the Dutch. Um, at the same time, Spinoza just is weird. Like, he's Dutch, he's Jewish, he's not really a rationalist, but he's not really, he's definitely not an empiricist. He's kind of earlier than most of the idealists, but he's later than all the medieval philosophers that you could potentially tie him to. Like, he just doesn't belong here. But he's also kind of significant, and I really think his attitude towards love is kind of fascinating and will anticipate a lot of sort of ideas about love going forward, especially as a contrast to the humanistic discussion. You know, we talked about, like, how Dante is building love up to be this super important feeling that defines your entire being and that can even save you from death and destruction. Like, Beatrice and, his, and her love for him is what ultimately saves him from his sin. Like, this is a huge amount of weight to put on love. Um, and the discussion of love that we've seen since, like, from this humanistic perspective, is even though it's been like considerably restrained from what Dante is suggesting, like when Milton's talking about love, he's certainly not talking about it in the same glowing terms as Dante is. But at the same time, like Milton is very eager to say, you know, the essence of marriage is this love relation, which keeps us from feeling alone, which is mental and spiritual, which is not purely sensual or sexual. There is a religious dimension here that is being overlooked, and that's why divorce should be allowed, counterintuitively, because... Otherwise, we are sort of making marriage out to be purely sexual, and if our only restriction against, you know, when divorce is allowed is based on the physical element, then that really sort of cuts away from what marriage is actually supposed to be, a meeting of the minds of man and woman achieving not just a unity of, you know, sexuality, but a unity of mind and spirit, an ability to make each other feel less alone. Um, now, Spinoza... Notice, like, the very first thing he says about love in our chunk of the ethics here in part three. Love is nothing else but pleasure accompanied by the idea of an external cause. That's Proposition 13 in Book 3. And there is perhaps no more prosaic approach to love in the entire history of philosophy than this. 
at this point at least. Notice what he's saying here. All that love is, all that love is for Spinoza. And no, you know, huge union. Like he talks about that a little bit while a little bit later. He's like, yeah, that's a property of love, but it's not the crucial element of it. You know, all he's saying is that love is sort of pleasure tricking us into feeling something more than pleasure. Uh, pleasure accompanied by the idea of an external cause. When you feel pleasure about something in the world that isn't yourself, you experience love. That's it. Like, it is on some level a psychological trick, as Spinoza is putting it. Like, we have not had a philosopher boil love down to pleasure and call it a day up until this point. And on some level, this comes, comes off as being surprisingly cynical. Like, shockingly cynical. Now, I should mention this occurs in a context, and once again, we're dealing with a book, you know, the philosophy of erotic love textbook, as I've mentioned before, frustrates me insofar as it sort of takes a lot of these philosophers and a lot of these ideas out of their proper contexts. Spinoza's context absolutely cannot be divorced from anything that he says in his ethics. The ethics is an astonishingly gorgeous book specifically because it is all of one piece. It is one logical argument start to finish through five books, and it's just like every single argument that he's making relies on the arguments that come before. Like, I cannot express how tight Spinoza's reasoning and the ethics actually is. And I definitely want to stress what's going on in the books before we get to this fairly wild declaration that love is just pleasure accompanied to the idea of an external object. Like, we need to contextualize this. And the major thing we need to contextualize is that Spinoza is doing a radical project here. Like, the Dutch admittedly are super Protestant, so there's a certain amount of wiggle room that folks have in Holland at this point where... Or, where they, you know, can sort of experiment and explore the possible connotations behind the Bible and come to their own conclusions the way that we've talked about it, like Protestantism, their whole project is come to your own theological conclusions. Read the Bible, see what you come of it. But this one, this one would have shocked everybody. Like, I'm pretty sure this got hardcore banned by the Catholics. I wouldn't be surprised if it got hardcore banned by the Protestants as well in many circles. Spinoza effectively argues in book one and book two for pantheism. Now, I know that this term is, you know, bandied about a lot and that, like, the sort of different kinds of theisms are very much confused in the public consciousness right now. So let me explain. Pantheism is the belief that the universe is God. Um, that God is not something outside the universe, that God did not create the universe, but rather that the universe and God are one. This is an idea frequently associated with Buddhism. Like, this is not necessarily appropriate. For the Buddhists, the world is, is kind of all of a piece, and yes, you do sort of like immerse yourself into it in certain ways, Pantheism, if it's a Buddhist concept, is, is something that comes down the line. Like, you've got to be into in Buddhism pretty deep to see the pantheistic elements there. Um, instead, pantheism kind of has always been around. Like, back, way back, before Socrates, um, there were a couple of philosophers like Parmenides who suggested that the world was one and that we were, you know, all part of the world and part of God. Um, the Neoplatonists flirt with this idea a little bit. 
before Augustine kind of like shakes it up and, and abstracts the Christianity out of it. Um, the idea has been kicking around uh, quite a bit, though. But for Spinoza to not just say, you know, God is the universe and we are therefore God, but also to say that, yeah, and also that's the Christian God, in case you were curious. Like, this is, this is a lot. And a lot of people are going to be, you know, frustrated or, or thrown by this. Like, this is a radical approach towards how the universe works, towards how God works. Um, and I want to stress, like, Spinoza knows this. He's not beating around the bush here. His conclusion is, you know, the universe is what God is, that we are all participants in godliness, that we all have one common mind and are therefore in agreement all the time, and the only times that we don't agree are just apparent disagreements, and it's all just a mistake, and really we all think the same things at the same times all the time because we are all God, we all have you know one common cause, one common goal, we are all just doing God all of the time. Um... And this is, this is, again, new, big, complicated. Like, God is us, we are God, our minds are God, and God is our minds. Like, it's really quite a leap um, and leads into some very interesting ideas. But this is also really important for understanding this passage about love, about hatred, about all of these sort of feelings, these passions, the affects as they're translated in, in my old you know, undergrad version of, of the ethics. Um, these passions, these experiences, these emotions, um, these are, to Spinoza, kind of a perversion of the one single-minded attitude that God represents and that we represent by being in God. So notice that while love is generally kind of okay in Spinozan philosophy, like, you are supposed to feel love about certain external feelings. He's also very critical of most of these emotions. And by boiling love down to a pleasurable experience that we associate with an external cause, he's basically saying that all of those transcendent things that we feel about love are off the table today. Uh, none of that, you know, spiritual union between two people stuff, none of that, like, transcendent experience of God stuff. Like, it's literally just the feeling that we have when we encounter something that we like. And therefore, when something pleases us, we say that we love it. And notice that there are no distinctions here. He's not saying, well, there's this kind of love and there's that kind of love. Like, he will make a couple of distinctions later and say that there's good things that we can be attracted to and bad things that we can be attracted to, but that's as far as he goes. No distinction between eros and philia, no friendly love versus, you know, erotic love. None of that is here. Love is love is love is love. And love means pleasure specifically and only pleasure when talking about something beyond us, something external to us. Now, you can follow his reasoning here. Again, it's really freaking tight. Um, but notice, you know, Proposition 15 especially, he says, anything can accidentally be the cause of pleasure, pain, or desire, which means you can love anything. No qualifications. Like, this is not an emotion that is just reserved for people. This is not a feeling that is just reserved for certain elevated experiences. No, you can love popcorn the same exact way as you love people. This is what Spinoza is suggesting here. 
Like, any time that you feel ple pleasure associated with a thing outside of yourself, or a person outside of yourself, or an experience outside of yourself, or whatever, that's love. No qualification necessary. That's it. Um, and notice that his corollary, it's probably not to Proposition 15, you'll notice the dots there suggesting that it's like considerably afterward. He says, simply from the fact that we have regarded a thing with the emotion of pleasure or pain, though that thing be not the efficient cause of the emotion, we can either love it or hate it. Notice the two sort of emphases here. On the one hand, it's literally anything, like no matter what. Anything that we experience pleasure or pain toward, we can either love or hate. But also, even if it's not the cause, even if we just associate these things, like, even if, you know, I am, I, like, break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend and I happen to be wearing, you know, a certain yellow shirt, I can get upset at the yellow shirt and learn to hate that yellow shirt. Like, this is what Spinoza is saying about the situation. It doesn't even have to be a cause. It just has to be there. It has to be associated with it in our minds. That's all that is necessary for love or hate to be built. We could be 100% wrong about the cause. We could absolutely hate something that was totally not even involved. But if we associate it, then we still feel the hate. Even if we, like, misremember a memory, we could potentially hate something that wouldn't be appropriate to hate. That's what Spinoza is saying. And notice that this is a very descriptive attitude towards love. Again, as much as this is presented as though it is absolute truth in the style of medieval philosophy with the sort of unflinching logic that we would expect from medieval philosophy, notice that it is purely subjective. That's what he's emphasizing here. Like, the actual truth of the matter is not even on the table here. Like, the question, are you really in love with them? you know, something or a person, Spinoza would consider that a ridiculous thing to ask because that's not what love means. Love is not something you aspire to. Love is something that just happens to you. Love is not grand or significant or worth dwelling on. It's literally pleasure and an external object. That's it. Um, now, notice that he goes on. Like, we have all of this discussion of associating, you know, pleasurable things and with pleasurable things. Like, there's this whole business that if somebody is, you know, acting in a way that is positive towards the pleasurable thing, well, we will love them by proxy. Or if somebody is acting negatively towards something that gives us pleasure, we will then hate them by proxy. Like, the obvious suggestion here, although, again, he doesn't say it, he's using this incredibly abstract language, is that, like, if we love someone and somebody else loves that same person, then we will love them. But if we love someone and somebody else hates that person, then we will hate them. So, you know, the, the transitive property of love apparently applies here. Like, it is absolutely something that we will then, you know, attribute to somebody else. Now, the one exception to this that he very much stresses is any time that you, you know, feel love for something that only one person can possess, or that, you know, only one person can properly love, then that's where jealousy creeps into the discussion. Um, that, you know, we will feel well towards somebody who loves somebody who we love generally, but when we love somebody who only we can possess and somebody else loves them, then we feel jealousy, then we feel hatred, then that transmutes our love into disgust or into hate. And the relationships, he's actually fairly 
involved in his appreciation of these relationships. Uh, like, notice on, on page 89 where he's talking about, you know, uh, the note to Proposition 31. He says, This endeavor to bring it about that our own likes and dislikes should meet with universal approval is really ambition. Like, notice what he's suggesting there, that by, you know, going to people and saying, I like this and you should like this too, you are effectively making that network greater for you. Because remember, you know, people like the things that they like, and they like the people who also like the things that they like. So by going out and sort of propagating like for something that you like, you are effectively telling everybody to like you. Um, and that is ambition for Spinoza. So he recognizes that that is frequently a way that people sort of achieve social status. And notice that this is followed directly by that proposition I was talking about, 32. If we conceive that anyone takes delight in something which only one person can possess, we shall endeavor to bring it about that the man in question shall not gain possession thereof. We will hate them. There's jealousy creeping into the discussion. Um, now, Notice that this entire network of, you know, the things that we like, and the people who like the things that we like, and the people who hate the things that we like, and the people that we like, but can only only one person can possess them, and therefore we hate the people who like the things that we wish that we could have that we can't, or whatever the case may be. You know, all of these sort of various relationships ultimately boil down for Spinoza into greater and greater levels of discord, complexity, and ultimately hatred. Um, notice that he emphasizes that, like, there's this transmutation of love into hate and hate into love in certain circumstances. That if you love someone and then you ultimately come to hate them because either they've done something bad to you or they've hurt you in some way, that hate will be more powerful than it would be if you didn't love them originally. Likewise, if you hate someone and then that person shows love to you and you come to love that person, you will love them more than you would have if you hadn't hated them originally. Like, he's very much talking about this stuff in this very abstract sense, but also very much drawing from personal experience, from the subjective business here. He's not saying that these are rational behaviors. If anything, he's arguing the contrary. Like, they are motivated rationally within the context of his system, but he is very much stressing that it is still arbitrary. Remember, love is just pleasure associated by an external cause or associated with some external object. Therefore, it doesn't need to be there. Pleasure itself is not a rational feeling. Pleasure and the responses to pleasure behave according to rational laws, laws that he's quick to describe here, but pleasure and pain themselves don't have to behave rationally. Like, you, they don't spring up rationally. And therefore, even though the behavior is predictable, it isn't necessarily rational. And that's kind of what he's emphasizing here. Like, fast forward through the rest of the... Of the um, discussion here, like he ends up talking about the, the differences between you know the various emotions, and finally he comes down to a definition of the emotions, and he says, you know, right on page 97 in this little note between the two sort of like ellipses, I therefore recognize only three primitive or primary emotions, as I said in the note to 311, namely pleasure, pain, and desire. That's it. Like, all of the other emotions are secondary for Spinoza. Literally all of emotionality, all of human, you know, emotional complexity boils down for Spinoza to pleasure, pain, and desire. 
i.e. the feeling you get when you enjoy something, the feeling you get when you don't enjoy something, and the feeling that you want or don't want to be in the proximity of something. Now, he emphasizes desire as the actual essence of man. Like, he's stressing that desire is sort of the fundamental unit of human experience. Um, now, notice that he does distinguish this from love properly. Like, it's worth noting that love is mental, something beyond the pure physical attraction to, or to something or the physical response to something, which, again, pleasure and pain are both sort of physical responses. The way that he defines them here, pleasure is the transition of a man from a less to a greater perfection, and pain is the transition of a man from a greater to a less perfection. Basically, again, we're sort of boiling emotionality down to, like, very concrete experiences. In this case, what we're saying here is, you know, when you go from, in the Aristotelian sense, this lesser perfection to a greater perfection, when you go from being sick to being healthy, or when you, you know, go from being sad to being happy, you experience pleasure. Whereas when you go from happy to being sad, when you go from being healthy to being sick, when you go from, you know, being whole to being wounded, like, this is the experience of pain. Um, and that's it. Like, again, Notice the system that he's building here. When you, for whatever reason, go from being poor to being rich or going from, you know, less good to being more good, whatever you associate that with, good, bad, or indifferent, right, wrong, or otherwise, you will associate that with pleasure and therefore love that thing. Desire that thing. That's it. It's not rational. Again, this is so experiential, so grounded in our subjective experience, that Spinoza is absolutely acknowledging we will likely be wrong. Like, whether we're right or wrong has nothing to do with the emotional response that we feel towards these things. It is totally separate, totally indifferent. Which means that love is, to some degree, wholly separate from this, wholly indifferent to what is rational. Now, he's going to backpedal on this. Like, you, you'll notice that, you know, his last proposition that we get in, in Section 4 is that love and desire may be excessive, which seems, if anything, an understatement based on the sort of stuff that he's talking about here. But he does draw a distinction in the last couple of passages on page 102 and 103. So on page 102, for in Proposition 19, he stresses that there is this meretricious love, i.e. the lust of generation arising from bodily beauty, etc., etc., i.e. physical lust. That love is generally a problem. Like, notice that multiple times over the course of, of this text, he's been stressing that, like, succumbing to the passions is tantamount to madness, like disease, basically. Um, so being controlled by your passions in this way is irrational and therefore insane. Um, and that kind of love is bad for you. But that is contrasted with, on the one hand, Proposition 20, marriage, i.e. the desire to beget children, the desire to spend time with one, with another person because of their mental abilities or their soul. You know, that's good. That is rational. And love can therefore be rational. But this is a far cry 
from the high praise of love that we've seen in Plato, that we've seen of charity in Aquinas, that we've seen of, you know, all of those troubadours in the courtly love tradition, or definitely a far cry from what Dante is doing where he says that love can save him from death and from damnation. Like, this is a whole other way of talking about it. Love is indifferent to reason and therefore indifferent to goodness for Spinoza. But what I want to emphasize is for Spinoza, rationality, that is behaving in accordance with God, in accordance with the One in his overarching system here. What Spinoza is saying is that passion, and indeed love, can frequently interfere with that. So notice that he frequently stresses that like, when you love someone and the only one person can possess them, somebody else possesses them, therefore you hate that person, all of this causes hate and discord. Discord is an important word in this context. Remember, like, if we are all part of this one being, this one God, if the entire universe and us in it are all part of one being, then we are confused when we experience discord within and among the other members of that being. When we feel a lack of connection, a lack of unity with our fellow human beings, with the world around us, with the rest of God, as, we, as Spinoza explains it, that is A, irrational, because again, we're all one, and to be rational is to behave in unity and in concert with everything around us, and it is destructive. It is potentially self-destructive. So discord is bad. And not just because, you know, it hurts and causes pain, but because it is ultimately destroying the unity of the one and is irrational, mistaken. In fact, we are all saying the same thing. We are just talking past each other, Spinoza emphasizes elsewhere. So when we feel real discord, it is not a rational behavior. If we could step back and recognize what's going on around us, we could check that in its place and stop ourselves from feeling this. Which means that love, insofar as it brings us to this feeling, to this you know, discord, because we are, you know, hating the ones who don't love the things that we love or because they're loving the things that we want and can't have, like, that yields hate, hate yields discord, discord is irrational and therefore should be fought. So notice that Spinoza's ultimate conclusion as far as how our relation to love, desire, the passions, etc. Um, should be governed is actually really classical, really traditional, namely that we should be following our rationality. So notice on page 102, where he's, you know, defining and, like, sort of recapping in, in chapter 4 on, on bondage and stuff, he's stressing that, you know, in, in, like, section 10 here, he says, insofar as men are influenced by envy or any kind of hatred one towards another, they are at variance, and are therefore to be feared in proportion as they are more powerful than their fellows. 11, yet minds are not conquered by force, but by love and high-mindedness. 12, it is before all things useful to men to associate their ways of life, to bind themselves together with such bonds as they think most fitted, to gather them all into unity, and generally to do whatsoever serves to strengthen friendship. Notice the stress here is behave rationally. If you do not behave rationally, there will be discord, there will be fighting, there will be destruction, there will be, you know, the falling apart of the body of God. Um, however, if you use your love carefully, if you govern it carefully, if you don't get carried away by your passions, if you don't enter into the madness that accompanies excessive love for things that you arbitrarily think bring you pleasure or 
excessive hate for the things that arbitrarily you think bring you pain, then you will be all right. You will be rational. Reject those. Subject those feelings to your rationality. Only love what is rational to love. Only hate what is rational to hate. And you will perfect the understanding or reason as far as we can, as he says in section 6. You, you will follow reason and you will achieve harmony. That's the goal here. And again, this does sound like the ancients to some degree. Plato would agree with this statement, although he probably wouldn't have questions about the way that we came at that. Notice that Spinoza is basically saying that love, as a sort of extension of desire and pleasure and pain, all of that should be subordinated to your rationality. Only participate in love when it is rationally founded. Only participate in love when you can ground it in unity with one another rather than in disunity with one another. I.e. don't love jealously, at the very least. Don't love excessively. Don't love disproportionately. This is what Spinoza is prescribing here. Um, love is not some holy experience, some you know, beyond the pale of, of emotion experience, something transcend transcendental. Like, what Spinoza is saying is love is the feeling of pleasure associated with the things around us. It can totally be mistaken, it can totally be wrong, and it can totally cause us to be miserable. It can totally cause us to behave irrationally. And thus, it should only be experienced carefully, and it should absolutely be controlled. So love is not going to catch you up for Spinoza, or if it does, that madness is to be avoided. Notice how different this is from what has come before. This is why I'm sort of stressing that Spinoza is kind of an early Enlightenment thinker, because Spinoza is very much emphasizing rationality to the exclusion of everything else around him, and that's something that is very characteristic of the Enlightenment philosophy, which means now is as good a time as any to talk about how exactly the Enlightenment comes around. Now, the Enlightenment is usually... Like the the Enlightenment is usually what we refer to like the 18th century, especially as 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 being. But the Enlightenment is also sort of this just big overarching philosophical movement that sort of carries Europe off in the late 17th and early uh, 18th centuries. Um, what I want to stress here is the way that the Enlightenment kind of came about, and Spinoza is very much doing this work. This is what I want to stress. Spinoza is taking his rational, like, quasi-scientific approach, and he's talking about religion, he's talking about ethics, he's talking about the human mind, he's talking about all sorts of dimensions of human experience, including their freedom and their behavior, beyond what science would normally consider itself, you know, fitted to talk about. Now again, I've very much been stressing that science isn't a word that means anything at this point in history, but now is the moment when science, as something distinct from philosophy, is starting to come around. So it's not, you know, long after Spinoza writes The Ethics that we get Sir Isaac Newton writing the Principia Mathematica, his giant treatise about physics and, you know, the laws of motion and all that fun stuff. Um, these ideas are sort of at the turning point in what is considered science. Like, Isaac Newton himself considered himself a natural philosopher. That was the term that he would have used. But in the years following the publication of the Principia Mathematica, he, as well as Copernicus and Galileo and all of the 
you know, natural philosophers up until this point will largely be rebranded by Enlightenment thinking as scientists, as, you know, the, per, the pursuers of science. And science is going to become this separate entity from philosophy. But at this point, they are still mingled. And this is kind of what I want to stress here, because with that intermingling comes a sort of confusion. Now, as time goes on, again, there's going to be a stricter divide between science and philosophy. We're going to recognize that some things properly belong to science, some things properly belong to philosophy, and the two probably shouldn't mix all that much. But at this moment in time, people are taking the scientific method, this sort of experimental, highly rational approach, and applying it not just to what we would typically consider the subjects of science, like biology or chemistry or physics, but also... They're taking this sort of logical approach and applying it to politics, or to ethics, or to human interactions in a variety of ways. Because again, this is what Aristotle and Plato did. Like, they used the same method, and they talked about, you know, everything from basic physics to the way that reproduction works, to the way that, like, various elements and chemicals interact, to indeed higher questions insofar as philosophy is usually concerned, like how should we behave, do we have free will, is there a god, etc., etc. Now, now that we have this new method for gaining knowledge, namely the scientific method, this method of experimentation and, you know, carefully analyzing the, the data that we have at our disposal and coming to a rational hypothesis that potentially explains the data and then experimenting and devising experiments to see if that hypothesis holds up, now we're thinking, well, if we can do such awesome stuff with the natural world, if we can come to much more reliable conclusions about the nature of the universe, or if we can create these brilliant inventions like new telescopes or, you know, new devices that allow us to, you know, cross the, the oceans much more effectively or potentially, you know, power complex mechanical devices or, or solve problems that we never knew that we could potentially solve mechanically, well, then what if we use the same logic and apply it to government, apply it to our understanding of human beings? And out of this comes this newfound sort of discussion of what is human nature? Um, how do we best control human beings? How do we best govern them? How do we best harness their energy without sort of falling into their natural inclination to, you know, kill and to destroy one another? Um, how can we take the energies that are usually devised and focused on war and misery and suffering and instead turn that around to something approaching utopia, a perfect society? And there was a lot of discussion about this, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries. Remember how we were talking last time about how Milton is very much engrossed in the 17th century Europe that is suffering all of this incredible upheaval, revolutions, and, and new ideas about the way the government works? Well, af in the aftermath of all of this upheaval, after all of these revolutions, John Locke writes a new book of philosophy justifying the most recent of these revolutions, namely the Glorious Revolution, in which the British people basically just told James II to just get out, and he did. Like, he had to, like, flee in a rowboat, and I just, like, imported some new king over from from the Netherlands. It was like, congratulations, William of Orange, you are king now. Why? Because we said so. Don't ask questions. Um, 
John Locke writes this long involved treatise about government, namely the two treatises of government, to basically say, yes, that was a totally legitimate thing that we did, and all of us are totally right for having done it, and really government is supposed to be the will of the people, um, and whoever is governing does so at the behest of the people, and if the people are done with that person being the leader of their nation, then they can totally exercise their right and get rid of them. Um, government now is rational. No longer do we have these ideas about the divine monarchy. Like, yes, there are our fair share of divine monarchies hanging around for dear life at this point against the sort of tide that is threatening to overcome them in, in all of this new focus on rationality and science. But increasingly, we have these philosophers saying, actually, government is whatever we damn well please. And therefore, if we say we don't want to be governed by you anymore, then we have the right to kick you out. Um, Locke is going to suggest this in the two treatises on government, and the philosophes in France are very much going to echo these thoughts. Thinkers like Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Rousseau are all going to pick up on these ideas and develop what Rousseau calls the social contract, i.e. all leaders, all kings, govern with the permission of the people. They are engaged in a universal social contract, an implicit agreement that the, between the governed and the governors that the governed will allow the, governed, the government to exist in exchange for their safety and prosperity. And if one or the other side isn't doing what they're supposed to, it is entirely the right of the other to crack down on them. If the people aren't giving the government enough sway to, you know, keep them from hurting themselves, then the government will tax and the government will take more. But if the government takes too much, then the people have a right to throw them out. A God-given right. A right passed down by the nature of rationality itself, by the fact that they are themselves rational agents. And this, of course, brings us to Kant. Kant very much emphasizes in his morality that everyone period, every human being, is a rational agent and therefore has the right to govern themselves. And therefore government exists when all of those rational agents get together and agree to place over themselves somebody who is going to make laws, make rules. But they are, in effect, making rules for themselves by electing, by creating this person. And Kant will elsewhere stress that a republic is the only logical form of government. Get rid of those monarchies. Get rid of those, you know, tyrannies. Republics make sense because it involves the people directly electing somebody who represents their ideas, represents their thoughts, and therefore can stand in as their representative in the decision-making process of the government. Not straight democracy, Kant is actually kind of, you know, not on board with straight democracy, but specifically a democratically elected republic. Something that can withstand the whims of the mob, the majority, and thus not be completely unpredictable, but at the same time it does reflect the will of the majority, reflects the will of the people. And he actually emphasizes that we're not going to achieve utopia on Earth until that happens, but... Importantly for Kant, and for Locke, and for many of the writers during this point in history, we will in fact achieve it. For Kant, as for Hegel, as for Rousseau, utopia is inevitable. 
the entire history of human society is this gradual approach to a super rational, super perfected, super streamlined human nature and human government system that will endure forevermore. And we are on the path to it. History has been driving us to this moment. We are the inheritors of a legacy, and now we get to build what was always our birthright, our perfect society. This is going to happen. All of these thinkers agree on it. So this is one of the key components of Enlightenment thinking, this belief in the inevitability of a perfect society. The fact that we have you know, been gradually perfecting our knowledge through the centuries, and now that we have this scientific method, now that science is teaching us all these new revelations about the world, we can use this scientific method, we can use our heightened rationality, and we can achieve peace on earth, utopia, universal prosperity, universal benevolence, everything can be good now. Now notice... It's not quite that simple. And the Enlightenment Project is largely going to have problems. But before we get into that, let's talk about the other major strain in Enlightenment thinking. Remember how I was talking about the difference between rationality and empiricism? Well, finally, this comes to a head in the person of David Hume. Um, Hume is a hardcore empiricist philosopher living in Britain. Um, he is a Scottish philosopher, very much protected by the Protestant Reformation because England is thoroughly Protestant at this point. At this point, honestly, Catholicism has been losing this battle pretty heavily. They are not even that, you know, powerful in France and Spain, their old strongholds. Catholicism has lost a lot of ground during the scientific revolution. Like, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, Atheism is going to become gradually more and more prevalent, um, and even Protestantism is going to sort of degenerate into the deism of various sort of enlightened uh, thinking. Uh, but Hume, Hume is an avowed agnostic. Like, at times people accuse Hume of being an atheist, and he doesn't seem terribly keen to overthrow them, but based on me reading Hume as much as I have over the last few years, because he is another one of those philosophers that I regularly teach and regularly come back to, I think it is more apt to describe Hume as a hard agnostic. Um, in both the inquiry concerning human understanding and in the dialogues concerning natural religion, Hume states pretty confidently that God is something we cannot know. Not that God's something, God is something that we don't know. Like, there's a difference between agnosticism and what I'm calling hard agnosticism. Agnosticism is the belief that we don't know whether God exists. Like, I don't know whether he does or not. Like, a normal agnostic is convinced that, you know, down the line some evidence may be produced that tilt my convictions one way or the other. Like, if I see a miracle, then I will believe in God. If I see, you know, something truly horrible that God could not possibly have permitted, like an anti-miracle, then presumably I will reject God and embrace atheism. Hume, on the other hand, believes that just because of the limits of our knowledge, the way that our brains work, um, the only logical conclusion is that God cannot manifest himself to us in a way that is convincing enough for us to embrace theism. Nor is there a way for us to be convinced of atheism. The only logical conclusion, then, is agnosticism. Like, believe in God or don't believe in God, but that choice is entirely based on faith, not reason. 
And for you who have been sitting there in the wings thinking, how is it that all of these Christians have been saying philosophy and science and religion can all coexist happily together? Well, it is in this moment in history between the 17th and 18th centuries that we fully dis sort of cement the division between religion and science. Um, Hume is the one who is ultimately going to like stick the wedge deep enough to break the two into two wildly separate disciplines. Hume is arguing that because religion cannot be, be grounded in rationality, that rationality does not do what religion needs it to do in order for us to believe in miracles, therefore the only basis for religion is faith and faith alone. It's a hardcore Protestant idea. Sola Fides is definitely floating in the background, but this is farther than Protestants have typically been willing to go. Protestants believe that, yes, uh, our knowledge of the truth, of our knowledge of the Bible is rooted in faith alone. Luther says this, Calvin agrees with it, everybody in the Protestantism agrees with this. But they're willing to say that rationality springs from God, that you can know God rationally just as you know him through faith. It's just that your faith has to be there first, rationality to follow. And notice that this itself is a huge difference from what Aquinas is saying, where he's like, rationality and faith go hand in hand. Like, they are one truth, it is one God, it is one religion. Therefore, anything that is true is true for all of them. But Hume is saying no. Hume is saying your rationality is going to always be limited by your personal experience, by what your senses can tell you. And your senses simply will never be able to tell you one way or the other whether God exists. There is no way to produce evidence for a scientific argument for God's existence, just as there is no way to produce evidence for a scientific argument against God's existence. God's nature is such that it is beyond the bounds of our experience, and therefore it is faith and faith alone that will decide whether you believe in God or not. Rationality has nothing to do with it, and science has nothing to do with it. And this is the moment, folks, that rationality and science become opposed to religion and faith. That they stop being two sides of the same coin, as Aquinas puts it, or sort of embraced the way that Luther and Calvin are describing it, and instead become active adversaries, or at least in the cultural consciousness. There will be people who say that there is no disagreement between, between the two. Christians especially will be very quick to say, you know, God is rational, belief in God is rational. But even Protestants nowadays, and you will find especially among American evangelicals, tons of people who say, yes, my faith is opposed to my rationality, it is opposed to scientific conviction, and I have no problem with this, and therefore I don't feel any compunction about behaving irrationally because I am behaving through faith and faith alone. It is complicated. Let me just stress that on the outset. It is not so simple as, like, Hume said it and now it's official and now, you know, rationality and faith are never going to be friends again. No, there are always going to be people who sort of defy that. But in the cultural consciousness, religion from now on is going to get farther and farther from science and science is going to get farther and farther from religion. Science is going to basically embrace atheism even when it doesn't make sense, and religion is going to embrace irrationality even though it doesn't make sense. Um, it's 
complicated. And we'll talk about the sort of ways that the, these ideas will interact later when we encounter guys like Kierkegaard or C.S. Lewis or uh, Chesterton, other folks who are writing about this division. It's not the primary focus of our class, so we're not going to dwell on it too terribly much. But the thing that I want to emphasize is that Hume also says in this process that rationality alone, like the rationality of the rationalists, and indeed the entire business of metaphysics, of philosophy about reality, is bullshit. And this is a huge deal. This is a turning point in the history of philosophy. Just as Hume is rejecting the you know, scientific validity or the scientific confirmation of religion, Hume is also saying that all of those big mysteries that Plato and Aristotle and even Descartes and Spinoza are kicking around, these discussions about you know, what is the nature of God, or you know, how does God interact in the universe, or do we have free will, or all of these questions about identity and who we are and what makes human beings human beings, and how do we relate to our rationality, all of these questions for Hume are bunk, because there is no way for us to verify our conclusions. All of this is to be thrown out, cast into the flames, he says, unless it has to do with mathematics specifically, or some you know, knowledge gained through scientific observation, it is nonsense and needs to be rejected. Rationality for Hume is merely a servant of our experience, of our lived uh, sensations and of our sensory uh, data, as, as it were. And this, this Kant can't abide. Um, Kant writes in the preface to the Critique of Pure Reason that Hume woke him from his dogmatic slumber. Kant is convinced that philosophy can still survive the attacks of Hume, and that we should be able to talk about metaphysics, that we should be able to use our rationality even before experience to come to certain observations about the universe. And when Hume rejects the universe, he goes so far as to reject cause and effect. Like, he's like, you cannot understand the relations between causes and their effects. Effectively, there are no causes or effects. Only observations between things that follow one another. In much the same way that Spinoza has just been suggesting that, like, love follows our pleasure associated with some external object, whether or not there was a cause, Hume is saying the same. We only ever observe the effects, these random things aligned with one another. We make associations. We never actually see the causes and effects related to one another. But Kant doesn't buy it. Kant instead says that through the organization of our mind, through the categories of our understanding, through the, ex the mental experience of space and time as these universal constants that define and sort of occupy and, and like box in our experience, these lenses through which we understand the world, we can in fact come to rational conclusions about the world and in fact unite our rationality to our experience and therefore come to science and scientific uh, understanding of the world around us in more than just the limited sphere that Hume is talking about. And I want to stress this, because when Hume throws out much of philosophy, he also throws out the possibility of that utopian state we were talking about. Kant is rescuing Enlightenment philosophy from Hume's skepticism. He is very much rejecting 
Hume's conclusions about the limitations of our knowledge and instead arguing that no, rationality and science can exist hand in glove and should. Um, and in doing so, he is arguing that yes, we should pursue utopia, and yes, utopia is inevitable, and yes, society should be founded on rational principles, and yes, those rational principles are not illusions, but are real things that, that match up with our lived experience and our own personal desires. And it is this kind of thinking, not necessarily through Kant, because Kant's a little bit later, but it is this kind of thinking that rationality can, in fact, build this perfect society that leads the founders of the Constitution to ultimately try to make this happen. Um, this is where I kind of want to get to as far as the practical consequences of the Enlightenment, because in a sense, the American Constitution is kind of the pinnacle of Enlightenment-era philosophy. It is the logical product of what Enlightenment philosophy up until this point has been sort of proclaiming and promising. The founders of the revolution very much follow Locke when they say that, hey, we get to decide who our government is, and if we are not being properly represented in the government body that decides our fates, we have a right to kick out that government body. Like, that's basically what the Declaration of Independence says. Okay, King George, you've been taxing us for too long, and we haven't had a say in, in whether or not we get to be taxed or not, so we're just going to kick all your British butts out of our country, and we're going to declare independence, and we're going to basically govern ourselves, as is right, in the eyes of God. And notice that that connection to God is still there. This is kind of a weird sort of characteristic of Enlightenment philosophy. They do, in fact, believe in God, but God is kind of this God of Spinoza. He is mechanical, mechanistic. He puts the world into motion, he lets it abide by rational principles, and then he does not interfere. Yes, there are a couple of miracles in the course of history, but we don't do miracles anymore. Now everything is re reasonable, rational, it abides by law, and God wants it that way, so we can then take over and, you know, govern ourselves, rule ourselves, behave ourselves according to our rationality. God is looking for us to behave rationally, not for us to just participate in mysticism the way that those silly medievals with their primitive understanding of the world did. Um, so it is God's will that we behave rationally. It is God's will that we throw off oppressive governments. It is God's will that we govern ourselves according to rationality. And it is God's will that we seek scientific answers about the world rather than just use the Bible as our sole source of knowledge. All of this is very enlightenment thinking. And most of the founders of the Constitution most of our founding fathers absolutely agreed with these principles, with these Enlightenment ideas, as they inherited them through the French and as they're practicing them in their own lives. Um, but the Constitution itself, the actual document that they create to sort of build the government around, is also hardcore Enlightenment philosophy. The idea that if we apply our rationality, our scientific understanding of the world, if we examine ourselves closely enough and see all of the faults that exist in human nature, and then build some structure, some logical 
like mechanism that overcomes those faults, we can achieve that same promised bliss, that utopia that Kant and Rousseau keep talking about. And this, you'll notice, Spinoza has this very pessimistic view of human nature, which is, again, common to a lot of modern thinkers. As much as, you know, the early moderns like Montaigne are humanists, sort of emphasizing the awesomeness of human beings, it's later, like, later thinkers like Spinoza, like Hobbes, like Locke, who are very much emphasizing that human nature is irrevocably broken. It is messed up. People suck, in short. They hate each other, they do horrible things to each other, they behave irrationally, they do you know, all sorts of things that are bad for them. As Spinoza has emphasized through all that discussion of the emotions and how the emotions you know, lead us into madness and our passions, our love and our hate cause us to abandon the path of reason. The Enlightenment thinking thinkers agree with this, these ideas. Again, Hobbes and Locke both emphasize that people left to their own devices are pretty rotten to each other, that they are selfish and they will follow their own selfish ends. Honestly, you will probably not be surprised to notice that capitalism also springs as a philosophy from the Enlightenment. Adam Smith is definitely one of the major Enlightenment thinkers, and he is arguing that like selfishness will in fact bring us to prosperity and happiness, but that's definitely another conversation for another day. The key takeaway for our purposes is to note that the American Constitution is a document, a rational system, that turns the faults in human nature against themselves. It uses selfishness, pits it against other human selfishness, and, in theory, turns it into benevolence. Notice the way that the, the founders very much emphasize the checks and balances in the system of government, how they emphasize that each branch is sort of pitted against one another, um, that the selfishness of the president will be checked and balanced by the selfishness of the Supreme Court and the selfishness of the legislature. Um, the idea here is that if you give a whole bunch of people who are all selfish and have their selfish ends, the, this power, but a power that is limited by other selfish people with other selfish ends, if you build all of this together and have all of these people at the end of the day sort of brought up from noble motives and of people who are looking out for their own particular interests, what you will end up with is a system that rewards the best possible solution for everyone involved. And notice how similar this is to what Spinoza is prescribing to this whole idea of, like, take the passions, much like the people who are governed by the passions, and govern them with rationality. Like, yes, love, but love rationally. Yes, feel you know pleasure and pain, but don't associate them unnecessarily with strong emotions that will lead you into madness. The U.S. Constitution is a document theoretically designed to govern that madness, the way that the public gets carried away with whatever exciting thing is going on at the moment and checks all of the selfishness of the ruling class against one another so no tyrants are allowed to emerge, so no overpowered figures can, can take control of the government. Everyone is, at the end of the day, represented, and at the end of the day, everyone will, hopefully, choose what is best for themselves by balancing out all of the various different people with their various different agendas. This is the goal, anyway.
But I should also notice, I would be absolutely wrong not to, because on the one hand, I am a big fan of Enlightenment thinking. There's a lot of really cool ideas here. I like the idea of universal rationality. I like the idea that we all possess this inner dignity, the way that Kant talks about it, that therefore we should be allowed to govern ourselves, to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. I like the idea that this is universal, that all human beings participate in this rationality equally, and therefore that none of us should get precedent treatment of one over the other. I like the idea of, you know, using our rationality, using our ingenuity to cancel out the selfishness that is inherent in so much of human nature. But, much as I love so many of these ideas on paper and in theory, there are two facts to keep in mind about this. First, it fails. Enlightenment philosophy does not achieve the utopia it promised to achieve. In addition to the American Revolution and its resounding success at that time that we made a document that governed the country for 220, 50 years and counting, I guess, at this point, um, as much as that seems to be a pretty impressive success story, the American Revolution is followed immediately by the French Revolution, which is a giant bloodbath and everybody dies and everybody kills each other and there's so much horrific loss of life and it is completely senseless. And as much as everybody is talking about rationality, they fail to demonstrate it, and it just it's just a giant mess, and it just totally screws up Europe for the next hundred years. And therefore, there's only so much that we can actually trust all of this rationality. But also, the other glaring, like, omission in the room is the fact that while everyone is talking about universal rationality, and while everybody's talking about how all human beings are, are participating in this rationality, and all people are therefore governing themselves, it's hard not to notice the fact that there are not very many women, and there are not very many people of color who are enjoying the benefits of this universal rationality. What's more, there's a lot about slavery written into the Constitution, and like, Talking about the Enlightenment and then recognizing that the same people who are saying, yes, in the guise of God all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, at the same time as Kant is talking about the categorical imperative and you know how we should govern ourselves rationally and how everyone is part of the kingdom of ends and we are all rational agents and no one rules over another, at the same time as everyone is talking about the social contract and how great all of these ideas are and how universal prosperity is almost guaranteed by the progress of history, somehow... They are all talking about this while ignoring the fact that the slave trade is alive and well, and there is an entire population of human beings, supposedly rational agents, who are being willfully excluded from this discussion. If we were to follow Enlightenment principles really, like honestly, to their best, maybe we'd have something there. But we didn't. They didn't. And as much as all of these philosophers and, and statesmen were talking about fairness and equality, at the end of the day, they were still much more interested in profit and personal gain. And that includes the founders of the Constitution. Yes, Jefferson, Washington, Ben Franklin, Madison, Adams, you name it. Some of them were hardcore abolitionists. Maybe some of them were true believers in the Enlightenment agenda. Some of them were just parroting the ideas while not noticing that there was hypocrisy in their own backyard. It's complicated, and I don't want to get into the various nuances here. We are still untangling the legacy of the Enlightenment.
important is what it comes down to. We are still sort of trying to figure out what is good about modernism and what is bad about modernism. What we should continue to adopt from the principles of these 300 years and what we need to abandon because it is very much coloring the way that our society works and still functioning as a component of the oppression systems in place today. Imperialism was alive and well while the, while the Enlightenment was going on. That's an unpleasant fact that very much has to color our understanding of this moment in history. And all of these utopian ideals, as promising as they seem to be, and as much as there were a lot of people who seemed to believe in them 100% with no qualifications, as much as many of these philosophers were also abolitionists, were also feminists, were also trying to raise up the voices that weren't being heard, not everybody was. And this is what I want to stress. Like, before we get into Kant and his discussion of friendship, I want to drive home this one last point about the Enlightenment. Just like the Protestant Reformation, it is complicated. A lot of people are parroting what the great philosophers are saying while not seeming to care what actually comes of it, just because it is fashionable or profitable to say these things. Just as there are people now who adopt postmodern rhetoric for the sake of fitting into a postmodern culture without actually seeming to care about what the actions that they are undertaking say about themselves. There's hypocrisy in every generation, for sure. And to some degree, I suspect that you can divide the Enlightenment thinkers into three categories. There are those Enlightenment thinkers who are true believers and who are aware of the context of their actions and who really are convinced that like humanity is coming to this peak of its accomplishment and that everything is going to be great. And then there are some who do believe this but do at the same time seem to have this giant blind spot in their treatment of slaves or in their treatment of women who seem to say and say with conviction that there is universal rights and that there are, you know, universal rationality that everybody participates in and that we should follow this kingdom of events however you want to describe it. But then there's this third category of opportunists, people who say this and who really are just in it for the money or who are in it for the power or who are in it for the wealth, who stand to benefit from this. Whether it's Robespierre and the French Revolution, or whether it's, you know, some of the various opportunists among the founding fathers of the Constitution, or whether it's, you know, like, kings who sort of adopt these positions in order to keep themselves from being beheaded. There are many people who are adopting Enlightenment purposes without actually caring about what those, you know, words actually mean, in a sense. And it's real hard to decide at any given moment what group any one of these... Um, any one of our philosophers actually belongs to. Was Kant part of group one or group two? I don't know. I almost, I'm almost certain that he's not part of group three. Like, I don't think he was, you know, just saying it. He's just too, he says too much about it. He's too pivotal to the movement. But I definitely believe that there are some opportunists in there. That there are some who, you know, are just adopting the Enlightenment philosophy because it's fashionable and are not actually terribly perturbed by the fact that people are dying in Africa or being enslaved for their own purposes, either because they believe that they're not human and thus, you know, have sort of reconciled themselves to it that way, or because they just don't care. 
uh, because really these ideas are nothing but abstractions to them. Pleasant to talk about, but not realistic or in any way worth, in fact, implementing. So I want to stress this. I want us to give to have this understanding of the way that the 17th and 18th century worked, how carried away by the excitement of science, all of Europe starts planning for this new utopian version of the world to come. But I also want to stress that this movement is not the end of European history. Like, we did not all become modernists, we did not become all Enlightenment philosophers, and it is not Enlightenment philosophy that governs our world today. It's postmodernism that governs our world today, i.e. the reaction to modernism, the reaction to Enlightenment philosophy. And we'll talk about that, not next week, because that's when we're going to talk about Rousseau and Wollstonecraft, who are both products of the Enlightenment, even if Rousseau is sort of anticipating Romanticism. But we, once we start talking about Goethe, and once we start talking about you know, the actual 19th century philosophers, we will see that Enlightenment philosophy has a lot of problems and is, does not leave behind a terribly positive legacy. Um, but again, that's for another day. For now, let's take a brief look at Kant's lecture on friendship. Um, and I want to kind of stress that there's, you know, much as I said about, like, several of other of our philosophers, like I said about Aquinas uh, earlier, there's not a whole lot of new stuff that Kant is bringing to the table here. Like, Kant is a fascinating philosopher. The Critique of Pure Reason is amazing and groundbreaking. His groundwork of the metaphysics and morals is one of the greatest texts on ethics, I think, that has ever been written, and I very much think that it may very well be the best period the end. Um... He's got tons of really important writings that I find incredibly powerful and incredibly insightful about politics and about, you know, about ethics, about rationality, about, like, uh, epistemology, about metaphysics, insofar as he's, like, bringing metaphysics back, about science and the philosophy of science. All great. But this is a weird one for Kant. And if you've read the preface, which I don't expect you to, but is kind of, you know, interesting to do so anyway, in the introduction it even mentions, Immanuel Kant's longest continuous treatment of friendship is in a lecture that was part of a course on ethics, which he offered at the University of Konigsberg from 1775 to 1780. It should be noted that the lecture is not a polished work, since it was not prepared for publication. It lacks the system and coherence of a treatise, as well as the hidden artifice of an apparently desultory moral essay. This was not... Kant's finest hour. He didn't intend to write some long and involved treatise about friendship. And as much as he does write a lot of things that would be relevant to this class, that I would consider really important works, like I would absolutely consider The Kingdom of Ends to be an important insight into the nature of love and friendship. But that's not what he ultimately associates it with. He associates that with morality, with rationality, with the sort of strict self-government that Spinoza is kind of talking about in his ethics. Instead, the lecture on friendship that we do get starts with this really telling phrase. Friendship is the hobby horse of all rhetorical moralists. It is nectar and ambrosia to them. And in a sense, I love Kant for saying this. Like, I have been thinking this in the back of my mind since I started reading Aristotle and Cicero and all of our sort of ancient uh, philosophers on the subject of friendship. Back when I said that frequently the discussion of friendship kind of takes this fuzzy sort of form, Kant put words to it. And he's really kind of condescending here, which I also kind of like. 
this idea that friendship is the hobby horse of rhetorical moralists. To unpack this, on the one hand, he's saying it's a hobby horse, which means it's like a hobby and not an actual philosophical pursuit. Like, people keep writing about this shit, but it's not because it's important or significant or they've really got all that much to say about it. Rather, they're just writing about it because, like, it's fun and, and, you know, people like doing it, people like hearing about it, so they just, for some reason, keep publishing these silly essays. But also, he characterizes them as rhetorical moralists. Um, morality is an incredibly important idea to Kant. Again, many of his most important works are works about ethics. But calling them rhetorical moralists, the word rhetorical means, like, having to do with oratory. Meaning, you know, it's just to sound neat. So the idea that there are rhetorical moralists is the suggestion that there are these people who want to sound smart about morality without actually investigating the deep, meaningful causes of morality. And notice that he talks down to them again. It is nectar and ambrosia to them. What Kant is suggesting is that these aren't real philosophers, and the discussion of friendship isn't real philosophy, or at least not 99% of the time. And you have to think that he is, like, thrusting the dagger into Cicero's heart with this line. Like, Cicero is famously noted as being a better orator than he is a philosopher. But Kant is very much drawing that out here. Why are we listening to them, he is suggesting. Cicero wasn't doing philosophy. And anyone who is working off of Cicero's model, including definitely Montaigne and Bacon, are also engaged in rhetorical moralism. He is absolutely calling these philosophers out and saying, nope, this is not philosophy. And I want to sort of poke at this. Like, as much as, you know, I don't want to just dwell on the first line and call it a day, but really Kant doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of act to add to the discussion of, of friendship. Like, he's literally kind of retreading Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics for the better part of this essay. What I do want to sort of poke at is how I kind of agree. Like, the philosophy of friendship, you'll notice most of our scholars have kind of fallen into one of two categories. You've got your Aristotelian category where it's, okay, let's talk about friendship, let's talk about the different kinds of friendship, let's divide them up into categories, let's observe the way that friends behave towards one another within and within, around these categories, and then once we have a fairly systematic understanding of the way that friendship works, we can call it a day. But recognizing all the while that it is a kind of vague category, that it doesn't really boil down to rationality in some hard and fast sense. And you'll notice that Kant very much allies himself with this kind of thinking. The thinking that we saw from Aristotle and the thinking that we saw from Aquinas, this kind of understanding of the categories of friendship, how friendship basically functions, what we describe as friendship, all of that stuff. Kant is very much sticking himself in here. He starts by defining three categories of friendship, and they basically all align with Aristotle, even though he does make a couple of more poignant decisions about the three categories. Like, he says that it is going to be need, taste, and disposition that bring about friendship. So just as we had friendships of utility for Aristotle, it's going to be friendships of need for Kant. And just as we had friendships of, of uh, pleasure for Aristotle, now we have friendships of taste. And where we had friendships of virtue for Aristotle, now we have friendships of disposition. The three are very closely aligned, except as 
the friendship is of taste to some degree, because Kant actually goes out of his way to say they are not real friendships, they are pseudo-friendships. Hopefully we'll have time to talk about that. But in that second category are all of those discussions of friendship that we've seen springing from the Ciceronian model, i.e. these long and florid descriptions of how awesome friendship is, and you know how meaningful it is, and how it's two souls becoming one in the language of Montaigne. You know, Cicero did this, Montaigne did this, Bacon did this, some of our other philosophers on the subject of friendship have bumped into these ideas. Even Aquinas is guilty of it at certain times, is that we are not going to read from the textbook in this vicinity, namely Aylred of Raveau's um, spiritual friendship and also Emerson's essay on friendship. Like, all of them fall into this more Ciceronian category of just kind of fuzzily talking about friendship, sort of pointing at the experience they've had and kind of talking about how nice friendship is and how they had a really close friend once. It was really awesome. Like, even C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, he's doing this kind of Ciceronian discussion of friendship. And what Kant is emphasizing is that this is rhetorical morality. It sounds better than it tells us anything. It is insubstantial. And I want to kind of agree with that. <laughs> like, as much as I've really enjoyed in, like doing the research for this class and, and investigating all of these philosophers and seeing what they have to say about both love and friendship, I find that the discussion of love tends to be considerably more robust. Like, whether it's, you know, Spinoza saying that all love is there is just pleasure, or whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's Plato suggesting that there's like five different kinds of ways to talk about love, whether it's like the really, you know, physical model of Eryximachus, or the, the very sort of elevated model of Agathon, or, or the very sort of spiritualized model of Socrates, or even the very self-interested model of, of Pausanias, like, as much as I've liked sort of investigating what the Stoics have to say about love, and what the, you know, what the medieval thinkers have to say about courtly love, there's a lot of very concrete ideas being bandied around, and love changes over the course of history. But friendship really hasn't. Like, we have to really nitpick to get at, you know, how Montaigne differs from Cicero. We have to get at that one little detail, namely that, like, Cicero said that you should never disobey the state when you are conducting your friendship, where Montaigne says, nah, screw the state, friends are more important than the state. Like, yeah, that's significant, that's a big deal, but it's not on the order of, like, you know, Plato saying that love is the spiritual search for beauty, where you've got, you know, just a couple of hundred years later, the Stoics saying that one should avoid love at all costs because it will just cause you to go insane. Like, that's a huge difference. That's a radically different understanding of this feeling, this emotion, this experience. Whereas friendship, through the ages, it's always the same set of descriptions. At least, again, unless you're doing the Aristotelian, let's divide and, and draw lines and understand how friendship works in a, a very concrete sense. Anytime that it's like, oh, well, I had this really awesome friend, and it, it was like two souls become one, and we shared everything, and we shared our lives together, and it, was, it made us virtuous. It's like, how? Why? Like, how is it that friends stand up to tyrannies? How is it that friends, you know enrich one another's lives. What is the relationship between friends? You know, how can I tell whether my friendship is one of these sort of model virtuous friendships or if it's just a fake and it's just, you know, making me feel better, like it's just an act of 
self-pleasuring in some sense. Like, Kant very much gets at this with his approach. And even in his description of this sort of Aristotelian model of friendship, he is consistently incisive in this particular way, like where he says the friendship of taste is a pseudo-friendship. Um, or where he goes so far as to claim, you know, against Aristotle, um, when he's describing the friendship of disposition, he's very much stressing it's idealistic. It can't be achieved. Like, further down in the first paragraph, he says, If men, however, were so minded that each one looked to the happiness of others, then the welfare of each would be secured by the efforts of his fellows. And he's describing something awesome here. Like, the best example I can actually come up with is a, a uh, riddle I once heard. Um, but apparently there was this famous Chinese riddle once upon a time where, like, this sage was given a glimpse of both heaven and hell. And the sage apparently came back to earth and somebody asked him, well, what was the difference between heaven and hell? And the sage said, okay, well, in hell, everybody sat at a table in front of a glorious banquet of food and they all had six foot long chopsticks. And then they ask, okay, so what was heaven like? And he's like, okay, so heaven is all these people sitting at this table with a just huge banquet of food and they're all handling it with six foot long chopsticks. And the question is then, what was the difference? What was the difference between heaven and hell? How did these two images differ? And the answer to the riddle is, in hell, everybody is trying to feed themselves. They're sitting there with these gigantic chopsticks, trying to like somehow force all this food into their mouths, even though there's no way that their arms are long enough for them to be able to like shovel the food in with the chopsticks. Um, whereas in heaven, everybody feeds each other. And as a result, everybody is well-fed, and everybody is comfortable, and everybody is happy. Um, this is the model that Kant is talking about here. He is saying, if we all rely on our own selfishness, we will necessarily be unhappy. There are some things that we just can't get for ourselves. There are some things that you know we do want companionship for. We are radically alone in this selfish model of the universe. But ideally... If everybody gave of themselves, if everybody ignored their self-love and instead loved others primarily, everyone would be taken care of and everyone would feel that communal existence. My friend would take care of me and I would take care of my friend and we would both be taken care of. But he says that this isn't possible. This isn't something that we can achieve. As he says on page 211, friendship is an idea because it is not derived from experience. Empirical examples of friendship are extremely defective. It has its seat in the understanding. In ethics, however, it is a very necessary idea. But notice what he's suggesting here. This is something to aspire for, something that we can't reach because we are confined by our own selfishness. We can't get away from our own self-love. And as a consequence, you shouldn't because your friends aren't going to be able to transcend their own self-love either. Like, at the very end of the text, he's, he's willing to say here um, that, you know, it, it's, it's, you should definitely look after yourself first, and you shouldn't even trust friends 100% with yourself. Like, on the top of page 215, he says at the bottom of that uh, paragraph at the top, even to our best friend we must not reveal ourselves in our natural state as we know it ourselves. To do so would be loathsome. Like, we are too selfish, we are too vicious, we are too bad for us to 100% trust our friend with all of our identity in the way that Montaigne professes to do that, or in the way that Cicero's Gaius Laelius 
professes to have had that relationship with Scipio. Kant is saying, no. These empirical examples, these supposedly important historical friendships, Montaigne and Etienne, um, Gaius Laelius and Scipio Africanus, like whichever examples you want to point to, they are defective. They are not to be trusted. We look at these relationships and we say, oh, that sounds really nice. But in the back of our minds, we're saying to ourselves, no way did that happen. No way. It is unrealistic to expect any two people to have this level of intimacy, to have this level of sharing one's lives with each other, and for them to be so upstanding and so virtuous as to endure the scrutiny of these things. Montaigne and Cicero are giving us a really nice picture of what friendship should be, and Kant agrees, this is what friendship should be. This is what morality aspires to. But it is not what morality has achieved. And it is important to distinguish the two here for Kant. Um, as, he is, as he says, the maximum reciprocity of love is friendship, and friendship is an idea because it is the measure by which we can determine reciprocal love. The greatest love I can have for another is to love him as myself. But... I cannot love another more than I love myself. But if I am to love him as I love myself, I must be sure that he will love me as he loves himself, in which case he restores to me that which, with which I part, and I come back to myself again. This idea of friendship enables us to measure friendship and to see the extent to which it is defective. When, therefore, Socrates remarks, My dear friends, there are no friends, he implies thereby that there is no friendship which fully conforms to the idea of friendship. And he is right. For any such absolutely, absolute conformity is impossible, but the idea is true. This is actually a really important thing in Kantian philosophy, these things that we are aspiring to. In the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, he is very much raising up an ideal for morality, this categorical imperative, this perfect rational like being that we are and that we embody in order to achieve this moral universe, this kingdom of ends. He recognizes that it's difficult, unlikely, possibly even impossible. And he recognizes there are numerous ideas in his philosophy that we cannot prove the existence of, but must assume the existence of in order to perceive morally and rationally, whether it is the idea of free will in the case of ethics, or the idea of God in the case of metaphysics. These ideas are important. They give us something to shoot for, and once you have the idea, even if you can't make it real, you do have something to aim for and something that grounds the reality of the system that you were building. Kant, like Spinoza, is an idealist. He's building castles in the sky. But where so many of the idealists are criticized for building castles in the sky without knowing it, Kant does know it. And Kant stresses, you can build a castle on an idea, if that idea is so firm and so strong that everybody believes it. The social contract theory is built on this kind of rationality and philosophy, and so is Kant's morality. And Kant is stressing, friendship is impossible. And anyone who says that they have had a friendship of that richness, of that depth and robustness, is probably lying to you. It is very dubious, at the very least. We might trust Montaigne when he says that it comes around once in a blue moon, one in, once in the several centuries, but we certainly can't trust anyone who just claims to have this relationship just as it happens. That, this is an ideal. 
And it's an important ideal. It's an ideal that grounds our morality, that allows us to measure both ourselves and the people we call our friends according to its ideal standard, according to this absolute that we should be aspiring for. Because if, in fact, we did achieve it, things would be so much better. It's all those people in heaven feeding each other with the six-foot chopsticks instead of trying to jam their chopsticks into their own mouths. With that, there would be happiness. There would be prosperity. There would be rational morality across the board. Paradise would be achieved. We need friendship for that goal. We need friendship to ground our efforts to reach that goal. But we don't have it, and we can't, Kant emphasizes. And again, this isn't a systematic treatise. He's not laying down like exactly what the deficiencies of friendship are or exactly what friendship should look like. Again, because it is just an idea to him. It can't be real. The friendship of disposition or the friendship of virtue, as Aristotle would put it, is beyond us. And that's okay. We can make do. We need to continue to treat of this. We need to continue to revere the idea of friendship, preferably not in the way that Cicero and Montaigne are, where it's sort of this fuzzy ideal that, you know, they apparently have achieved, but the rest of us can just sort of sit down and be like, oh, why can't I have a friend like Montaigne? Like, that's not the goal here. Don't feel bad about not having a Montaignean friend. Kant is calling them out. This is a good idea to have, and he doesn't want to dispel this idea. He does, in fact, want us to pursue friendship on that level, but he doesn't want us to talk about it as rhetorical moralists, as making themselves look smarter when they talk about it. Instead, he wants us to talk about it in terms of what we should be aiming for, what we are, should be striving to accomplish. And I love this about Kant. I love how he turns something that is fuzzy and kind of unreachable and difficult to grasp into something concrete, rational, and meaningful for life, even if it is specifically because it is not concrete and not in life. Like, oh, I love Kant so much. Um, the rest, admittedly, again, like I said, he retreads a lot of Aristotle here. He is essentially doing a lecture on Aristotle as much as he's changing some of the words around. Um, but I really think it's those key ideas, that sort of framing that he puts this discussion in, that really changes the way that we should understand friendship. And it's so enlightening, too. So very much about these aspirations, these dreams of a better world, these rational explanations of phenomenons that rationality probably shouldn't try and understand. And yet, it gives us such a great insight. Uh, it gives us such a great way to understand the difficulty we have in getting through Cicero and Montaigne and C.S. Lewis and A.L. Red and all of the other writers who are sort of undertaking this. Not necessarily re rebuking them, not necessarily rejecting everything that they have to say, but putting them in their proper context. This is what we want, but it isn't what we have. So next time... We're going to talk about Rousseau, we're going to talk about Mary of Wollstonecraft, we're going to see the Enlightenment at its height, and also the seeds of discontent that are sort of hidden in the Enlightenment with Rousseau's kind of romantic leanings. We're going to see Mary Wollstonecraft absolutely take down Rousseau, screw that guy, and then we will proceed on into Romanticism and the great darkness of the sublime. I look forward to talking about it soon.